is a fantastic letter. We've been doing a deep dive, but I want to take today and catch up in this class. And uh, I readily admit that I made a bad pun with that picture. But I was, it was late at night and I was doing this while I was understanding that Abilene Christian was teaching the University of Texas how to play basketball. And I'm sorry, you soon, uh, not Sooners, uh, Longhorns, the Cows, whatever they're called. And uh, uh, I'm really sorry for y'all. Uh, bless your hearts. But it seems that small little Christian school out in West Texas just like, <laughs> anyway. So I was in a pretty good mood, and I was doing this PowerPoint, and I knew we needed a class to catch up, and here's the reason why. We've been doing a deep dive where we've looked at some trees in amazing detail. I mean, I've been talking verb tenses with you. We had the preposition box for two weeks. We've really dug into this text, and sometimes I worry that when we study the trees in amazing detail, we miss a lot if we don't also see the forest. And so I want this last day of spring break where I know we've got some visitors. I met Russell Cook this morning from uh, Oklahoma. I know we've got a number of others. Uh, I know we've got, uh, Scott's got a friend, it's a sec your second week here. Uh, uh, I want us to have a chance to make sure we see all of the forest as well as the trees. And so what this class is going to be is that. This is going to be kind of a review class where we have a chance to see what all Paul has been saying in light of the letter and the little details we've looked at. So this is a refresher, but it's not just old stuff. It's a, a, a refresher with some new language and some new ideas because the, when, I, when I concentrate on a paragraph and then the next week a paragraph and then the next week a paragraph, you lose the flow. So I want us to get the flow. So this is Paul's flow. Now background information. When scholars talk about presenting an argument, scholars talk about presenting an argument and they often will use two different terms. Eva, are you ready for this? Okay. Oliver, you ready? This will be on the test from your mother. The first term is polemic. Polemic is expressing an argument in a fairly in-your-face contentious way. That's why the boxing gloves. As a lawyer, um, I, I make a living in the courtroom expressing arguments. And I frequently cross-examine witnesses. And sometimes when I cross-examine the witness... It is fairly contentious. I can think of a trial I had a couple of years ago. <clears throat> In that trial, one of the witnesses took the stand, and I had an, uh, my IPVO there so that I could 
put down a note card and make notes so that he and the jury and the judge could track along with me. And I had a picture of him and next to him I had a picture of a jukebox. And I said, you sir are a jukebox witness, aren't you? He said, what do you mean? I said, they just put their money in and they tell you which song to sing and you sing it. He said, what? And I said, yeah. They've paid you $250,000 to come into this courtroom and testify. Well, uh, I earned that money. Uh-huh, by singing the song they want you to sing. Now that's polemic. That's a contentious argument that I was making. There are other witnesses where I'll make arguments, but I don't do them in a polemic manner. The other way to present an argument is called irenic. Irenic is the idea of still presenting your argument, but doing it in kind of a peaceful manner. So it would be a cross-examination that might start a little bit more like, um, well, right now I'm in the middle of a deposition. And I'm deposing this witness. And I started my, my deposition Friday. It'll continue in the morning. And if you're watching, uh, Mr. Witness, I'm so ready for you. But <laughs> not in a contentious way. Uh, there's no reason to be contentious with this witness. But I will still, nonetheless, present my arguments through cross-examination. They're just different approaches. Now, on the question of how we stand right before God, how do any of us stand before God without evaporating into the netherworld? If you want to read that in the Bible, one great place to read that is in the book of Romans. That is the theme behind the book of Romans and the book of Romans is very much an ironic book Paul makes that theme in a very nice way he's very peaceful he's fairly polite and that's an ironic presentation of how we stand right before God but we're not studying Romans in this class we're studying Galatians and Galatians is not a nice peaceful presentation of the gospel it is Paul being contentious I won't say that he's rude but I will say he is quite confrontational in this letter we often think that that Paul because God spoke through Paul into Scripture and we hold to the inerrancy of Scripture, and we know that the Holy Spirit was at work with Paul in, in preparing these materials that are in our Bible. That does not mean Paul himself was a perfect fella. Because he wasn't. And he's really chapped when he writes this book. And you can tell it when you read it. Now, the Galatian churches were churches that Paul missionized on his first missionary journey. They're in the southern part of Turkey. Galatia as a region reached north up towards the Black Sea, but, but the Galatian churches 
Uh, scholarship seems best to me to be those churches that Paul evangelized that we read about in Acts. And when he wrote it, we don't know for certain, but it was written early. I think maybe next to James, the earliest of the New Testament writings. And it's written likely somewhere as early as 48, 49, as late as perhaps 53 AD. Within 20 years of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul's writing this book. And the theme is how does one stand before God? That theme is important to everyone. That theme is important to me. Because I want to know how I stand before God. That theme is important to you. Because you should want to know how you stand before God. We may have people watching this who don't even believe in God. I want to tell you, even if you don't believe in God, this theme is still important because he's there. And one day you'll figure that out and you'll want to know how to stand in front of him. And also a lot of people don't believe in God because they think that God of the Bible is some terrible, horrible being that they wouldn't want to believe in. Stephen Fry says, if, if God is the God of the Bible, then I don't want him. And I'll stand in front of a judgment day and say, what right have you to judge me? You gave kids cancer. What's up with that? And so I think it's very important for everyone to understand what is the biblical teaching that Paul sets forth in Galatians on how does one stand before God. And Paul approaches this with two big points that are still two big points today. The first is authority and the second is doctrine. What right does Paul have to tell us how someone stands right before God? One of the biggest traits that I see in this age is the tendency of a generation, and maybe more than a generation, to define God by who they think and feel He should be. Well, God can't think this is wrong because I don't think it's wrong. And God, you know, and, and, and there is a tendency in our culture today to define God based on who we think he should be. And the question of authority is one where we become the authority to decide who God is and how we stand before him. And so this question of authority with Paul is extremely important for us to understand. Paul says, my authority, Paul, my, Paul's authority comes from the revelation of Jesus Christ that happened when I was on the road to Damascus and the unfolding teaching of his spirit afterwards. But Paul was emphatic that his was not a gospel that came from his mind. His teaching on how we're right before God didn't come from a sermon book he read or a commentary. 
It didn't come from reading the internet. Heavens, he didn't get it off Instagram. He didn't get it from the cultural icons that dictate what's on our screens. He says, I got it from the Lord himself who revealed it to me. Paul says, the resurrected Christ appeared to me just as objectively as he did the other 12. My gospel message is not something I've made up. And Christ not only appeared to me objectively, real, in real life, physical form, he he appeared to me. Not only did he appear to me, but he chose me. Paul says, just as he objectively as he chose the other 12. He goes to Peter. He says, drop your nets, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And he calls Peter out. Nathaniel's under a tree. And he gets Nathaniel and he says, I saw you under the tree. There behold is an Israelite in whom is no guile. Nathaniel, how did you know me? Well, back when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And he calls them and he anoints them. But he was no less direct in his call and anointing of Paul. Paul was an apostle, not in the general sense of the Greek word apostolos, which just means a messenger, a UPS man. But in the true sense of an anointed messenger with the king's message. And that's who Paul was. And so when we read this gospel and we read what Paul says, Paul's not throwing up there pell-mell some pie in the sky. Hey, here's an idea of how you stand right before God. Paul is saying this is direct revelation. This is based on the authority of Jesus Christ himself. And we're not reading something that's evolved you know historically there have been two main ideas in Christianity behind authority I think we're seeing a third idea now historically the two competing ideas were one so this is authority in the Roman tradition authority comes from scripture as interpreted by the church. So the church's interpretation is extremely important in the history because the the Roman teaching is that the Holy Spirit's been at work in the church and so um, uh, it's scripture interpreted by the church. The Reformation cry was different. The Reformation cry was sola, Latin for only, scriptura, only scripture. And so in the Roman tradition, your authority can be the scripture, but it's also deeply rooted in the church because the church tells you what the scripture means. Um, In the Reformation tradition, which this church proceeds from, and, and in which I'm firmly entrenched, it's, no, uh, the Holy Spirit, the church is 
the Holy Spirit does help interpret Scripture. But the difference is the church in, in the mentality uh, uh, that, that I carry, so you all know where my, my viewpoint is as you take it into account, the church is not the ecclesiastical structure. It's not the bishops and the, the, the pope and, and, and the cardinals and, and all of that. But for me, in my tradition and in my beliefs, the scripture interpreted by the church, the church are the people. And so the Holy Spirit works in me and it work, he works in you to help us understand scripture. And so we can go to the scripture without the need of how the church has spent thousands of years interpreting it. Those are two authority camps. But there's the third camp that's arising now, which is Scripture as I want it to re read. <laughs> and it becomes an I center instead of a Scripture in church or an only Scripture center. And so authority is a very important point. And those aren't verses to read over lightly. Because we're not reading what the church has been digesting for 2,000 years. We're reading the, the, the account, the theological statements of one who is writing two decades after, less than two decades after, the resurrected Christ. Who was president in the year 2000? Okay, don't all answer at once. We had Trump in 16. That means we had Obama in 12 and 8. So we had Bush, right? Young Bush. Shrub. I don't mean that offensively. Uh, I, I like the gentleman. Um, uh, but, and, and he might be watching. He, he has asked me before about this class, so he might be watching. I, I, I talked to him. I had done a legal matter for him, side note. I had done a legal matter for him, and he was very kind, and he called me and thanked me. And I took the phone call, and uh, I just picked it up, and I said, hello. And, and I hear this, this lady's voice, is Mark Lanier there? And I said, this is him. She said, please hold for President Bush. Now, he was out of office. I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. And so uh, uh, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll hold for him. And he gets on the phone. He says, uh, hey, Mark. And I said, I feel like I should be singing Hail to the Chief. <laughs> and he said, nah, I'm out of office. All you have to do is hum it. <laughs> but he did in that conversation. He says, now, are you still teaching? out at Champion Forest Baptist Church, which means his handlers had written a note card for him that he's reading off of before the phone call, but it was still pretty cool. So he may be watching. Mr. President, if you're watching, hello. But that's how long ago it was for Paul from the resurrection of Jesus. That's not that far back. So we're reading an authoritative message and we don't want to lose track of that authority. Now we got to keep moving or I'm going to get into the weeds again. So let's talk about doctrine. How does a person stand before God? A person stands before God by the grace of God in Christ. 
the gift of God in Christ. And that's how we stand before God. Now, the grace of God is another one of these terms that's gotten bandied about and interpreted historically. And different people have different understandings of the grace of God. There is a historical concept of infused grace. And I'm not going to label which church traditions these mainly come from. That doesn't serve us any good. But, but I want to look at the doctrines without seeming harsh to different church traditions. The doctrine of infused grace is the idea that the grace of God in your heart changes your life. So you stand before God because His grace comes into your heart and it develops your character in such a way that you have reason to stand before God. You become a better person. You become good. But that's not what Paul's teaching in, in Galatians. Paul teaches against that in Galatians. Paul teaches that the grace of God in Christ is something that's very concrete. God's grace is concrete. It's in the work of Christ. It's in the atonement. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news is the grace of God. The grace of God is not something that's happening in my heart to make me better. The grace of God is something that happened historically to save my eternity. It's an atonement. It is the paying of my sins. And so if we look at it that way, we understand that Paul's gospel is really clear on how a person stands before God. It's by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our trust, our faith in that. So, how does a person stand before God? Now, the, the heresy at the time of Paul, after Paul had evangelized and, and missionized these churches, some of his opponents came in. And his opponents came in and they said, the change in your life makes you acceptable before God. It's not simply you're declared not guilty for eternity's sake, but it's that change in your life. It's what you do. And, and, and they've got a clever argument. They say otherwise, I mean, Christ is a minister of sin. If, if Christ is just going to uh, uh, let you keep sinning and you're going to continue to sin and, and you don't live different and, 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 and your life doesn't matter, then Christ is like encouraging you to sin. And Paul is adamantly opposed to this. Paul is adamantly opposed to this. And Paul says that's a perverted gospel. And he curses anyone who teaches it. That is not the gospel. And we should never confuse the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our sins, with what we do. There is a huge difference between human duty and the gospel. And that heresy confused the two. And it's really easy, and it's a for, for us, because as Christians, we do care about how we live. And we do know holiness is important. In fact, a hallmark 
a, 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 a sign of the Christian life is that we struggle with sin. I struggle with sin. I would love to say, oh, heavens, I've reached the point in my life, I've walked with the Lord for 50 years. I've reached a point in my life where sin, I've pretty much beat that. But I haven't. I struggle with it on a daily basis. It is a hallmark. It's a sign of the Christian life that we are struggling with sin. We do care about moral duty. We care deeply. But that should never be confused with how we stand before God in the gospel. And Paul says, if anybody's confusing those with you, if anybody's putting out this heresy with you, let them be accursed. He says, it's not even really a gospel. That's not good news. So on this point, Paul says, I even had to oppose Peter because Peter wasn't living consistently with what he knew to be the truth. This idea that you've got to become, you know, Peter knew from his time with Cornelius. Cornelius is the first Gentile conversion for Peter. And Peter is, is kind of weirded out by it because it starts with a vision where God says basically, hey, you can eat anything, don't call something unclean if I made it. And Peter realizes over time that this is because he's going to go in and preach the gospel to a, a heathen, to a Gentile. And he goes in and he preaches it and, and the Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household. And Peter says, holy smoke. All right, holy fire. But where there's fire, there's smoke. So he probably said, holy smoke. Look, they've got the Holy Spirit. Now who can say we can't baptize them? They're, they're believers. Peter learned very directly. That you don't have to become a Jew to become a Christian. But then the heresy that was being put out in those Galatian churches was a little bit of a twist on that. It was a heresy that says, yeah, but once you become a Christian, you need to become a Jew. You need to get circumcised. You need to follow the dietary laws. You need to live like a Jew. You Greeks, you're welcome to come in. You can become Christians. You can join the church. Now let's live like Jews and let's get under the law. But Paul says, no, 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 no. If one had to become a Jew after becoming a Christian, think about the implications. Are you saying it's not enough to be a Christian? Are you saying it's not enough to be in fellowship to be a Christian? Of course it's enough. It's all you ever need. There's no need to add anything to the Christian stand we have. We stand before God. And this idea that anybody's going to reach a point of not sinning is an absurd idea. It is an unbiblical idea. Did you know there's an entire religious movement that gathered steam in this world in the 1900s? It's called the perfectionism movement. And the idea was, yes, you become a Christian and you get the Holy Spirit and all of this, but then you reach a point in your life where you don't sin anymore. And then you get an extra measure of the Holy Spirit. 
And, and I'm not saying, oh, wow, is that uh, Jim Jones's group uh, that drank the Kool-Aid? No, I'm talking a huge religious movement in the 20th century of perfectionism. I know some marvelous people who were perfectionists who thought they'd reached a point where they didn't sin anymore. And I just want to say, well, I, I not just want to say, I, I said, <laughs> are we reading the same Bible? I mean, go back in the Bible. Abraham and Sarah, like the holiest of the holy Joes from that day. Abraham and Sarah, go back and read Genesis 20. Abraham's still lying to Abimelech about whether or not Sarah's his sister because he doesn't want to get killed to have his wife snatched. Abraham's not sinless. Genesis 22, 20 verse 2 and, and verses following. Not just Abraham, how about Aaron, the first high priest? He's making golden calves in his off time. I, he's, he's not perfect. The Bible doesn't show him perfect. King David, uh, excuse me? Bathsheba, Uriah, need we say more? Say, well, yeah, but he grew old. Oh, come on. This is the guy who can't get warm when he's about to die. In my, uh, Dr. Sherry, I don't have a medical degree, obviously, but I think he had a real high fever. That's what I read. And do you know what? They, they, because he can't get warm. They're putting blankets on him. He's still shivering. Sounds like a high fever to me. He needed Advil or something. But, but instead, they get him a young lady to get under the covers with him to try to warm him up. He didn't change. <laughs> King Solomon, his son? I'm sorry, he's not even remotely holy. I mean, he's got his good moments, but he's got some pretty bad ones. He builds the temple, but even when he builds the temple, he says, there's no one who doesn't sin. And the prophets include that in the historical accounts. Read the Psalms. There's no one who does good, not even one. None of us are perfect. Isaiah the prophet, best man of his day. Isaiah 6, 5, he's before God and he says, Woe is me, I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live in the midst of people of unclean lips. He's not there. The Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray. Forgive us our sins. You don't get to a point in life where you get to leave that clause out. Paul says to Timothy at the end of his life, 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am, present tense, right now the foremost. So as Christians, we don't reach a point of no sin. So the question becomes, what's the significance of this sin? What does it mean? How does it affect me today? It means to me that every person is in need of God's grace from the beginning to the end. We are saved by faith, from faith to faith, from beginning to end. It's not something that, that ever changes. If we've got to ever reach a point where we've got an all or nothing attitude, 
it's going to lead to nothing. Because none of us will ever be standing before God based on what we do. It just won't happen. And if you think it does, if you think you can be justified by how you live right before God, if you ever believe you can be right before God by how you live, you've got one of two options that are going to happen to you. Either option A, you will be unbearably arrogant and holier than thou so deluded in your mind that you think you have earned God's love or more likely in our circles you will be utterly crushed under a burden of guilt to any degree the enemy is able to engage in your mind or mine the idea that our right standing before God is performance based we will either be very arrogant people because we will bring Scripture down so low that we are above it or we will be utterly crushed under the weight of it and the, the guilt. So salvation by faith in a crushed Christ is the only salvation. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. This is Christ. He bore the guilt. He is the one who was crushed by the weight of moral goodness. And that, Paul says, is our good news. So Paul continues, says, now, some of you listening to this are wondering, well, what, what about the law then? What about moral goodness? I mean, if, if that's the case, you know, historically, there have been two poles of thought on this. Oh, look at this, man. We are making it through the paper. All right. So here are big words for Ava to write down. One is anti-nomianism. Yeah, that's a big one, huh? And the other one is legalism. Now, both of these deal with the law. Moral goodness. Doing right and wrong. Behavior. Duty. Antinomianism is a breakup of three different parts. You have, Ava, you have a prefix, you have a suffix, and you have a middle of the wordix. <laughs> the prefix anti means against. Ism means a belief. I before E except after C. Is, is, I, we abbreviate that B-E-L. <laughs> Nomianism comes from the Greek word nomos, which is law. Antinomianism means who gives a rip? Free for all. Who cares? C'est la vie. Live and let die. Do, who, pfft, 
law small. We can just tear it away. I, born free. It's just reborn free. As free as the wind blows. I can do anything I want to do. Party time. Okay, that's antinomianism. By the way, lest I die of a heart attack right now and not get this out, let me quickly say that's not biblical. <laughs> okay. Legalism is the other extreme. Legalism is the belief, again, remember, that's the ism part. Legalism is the belief that we are made right by how we live. That we follow the law. That we follow the legal code. A legalist is someone who thinks they stand right before God because of what they did. And they have totally confused the biblical concept. Because the biblical concept is God is here. We are here. And God's communication or relationship with us is based on what he did at Golgotha, at Calvary, on the cross. Our relationship to him, what we do for him, this is called religion. And this is our moral duty. But that's how we respond to God. That is not our relationship. This is how we stand before him. And we've got to remember the opposite sides. So then the question becomes, what of the law? What of moral goodness? Is this something that we just trash? You know, does grace make one indifferent to God's will and law? Is moral law now irrelevant? And Paul's emphatic, no. <clears throat> moral law is not irrelevant. In fact, it means much to me. I understand by faith that God gave me the law not as some arbitrary list of do's and don'ts. He gave me the law to better understand how to live so that I can better follow his will and better do what he wants me to do. We've got... Um, We were talking, uh, look, um, we've got a 16, 17-month-old grandson. Um, and, and his parents, our daughter and son-in-law, are already teaching him how to swim. Um, I want them to teach me when they're done. Uh, I'm, I'm really proud about that, but they have rules that he, because he's learning how to swim, when Becky and I were there taking care of him recently, we were told, you can't take him in the backyard where the pool is because he only is allowed back there. He'll try to get into the water. And he doesn't know how to swim well enough yet. So don't, don't, he, he associates that with his swim lessons. So we were relegated from the backyard with John Henry. That rule, John Henry, you can't go in the backyard, is not some arbitrary rule. It's there for his good. 
It's there so he doesn't fall in the pool and drown. And God gives us law. The, the law is important. But the key is Christ never... Look, Christ didn't tear down the law. He tore down any idea of salvation by the law. He never tore down the moral duty. He just made it real clear, your moral duty, you'll never meet. So I'll meet it for you. Your moral duty, living right, will never get you right before God. It just won't. And so Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Now I was going to try and avoid verb tenses today, but I've got to throw one in there. There are some versions where you will read this. And, and it says, instead of, I am crucified with Christ, it says, I have been crucified with Christ. They're both valid ter interpretations. They're both valid translations. Because Paul's using a verb tense that is called the perfect tense in Greek. And it's a little different than our perfect tense. The perfect tense means there's some action that's been completed in the past. But it has a present effect. And, and, and the writer is emphasizing both a completed action in the past, but also the present effect. So when Paul says, I am or I have been, you can translate it, I have been crucified with Christ. That's a completed action. That actually occurred. I mean, when Christ died on Golgotha, I was there. My sins were on him. The God of all time, knowing all sins I'd ever commit, were on Him. See, when I accepted Christ and I put my faith in Him, it was not to be forgiven of my sins up to that point in time. It was to be forgiven of my sins, period. When on Acts, in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and Peter proclaims this incredible message that opens the, the doors wide to the kingdom of heaven. When Peter does that, the people, and, and, and we're coming up on Easter, so think about this for a moment. Here's Peter's message. Now try to divorce your thinking from knowing all of your Christian background and faith. And knowing what history unfolds and everything else. Just put yourself in the shoes of the Jews who are listening to, to Peter on the day of Pentecost. Here's what Peter said to them. Okay, you're wondering what's going on with this miracle you're hearing and seeing. Let me be real clear. You killed Jesus. Jesus is the son of of God you killed him dead and he's been resurrected he's back now average person doesn't understand history because hadn't lived it yet doesn't understand scripture hadn't read it yet is sitting there thinking uh, was I one of the ones yelling crucify him, kill Jesus, give us Barabbas. Uh, so he knows that. He's the son of God. He's got all those superpowers. And he's like, back? I'm in trouble. And so the people say to, to Peter, what do we do? Help us. 
how do we appease who surely is an angry God? And Peter doesn't say, oh, you appease him by, you know, um, doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G and giving him a big list. Peter tells him, repent. That means change your mind on this. He tells him to repent. He tells him to change, metanuo in the Greek is to change your mind. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And you'll receive the forgiveness of sins. But the key is, Peter didn't say past sins. He's saying all sins. I mean, when you come into this relationship with Christ, when you're crucified with Christ, all of your sins. Performance is out the window. This is why Paul says, if you can be standing right before God based upon performance, then why on earth did Christ have to die for all of your sins? But it's not just something that happened in the past. It's a perfect tense because it's got a present ramification. It means right now I'm still crucified with Christ. Right now I'm still crucified with Christ. All of my sins. This is never going to be performance based for me. It's not. So within the framework of that. Paul says in baptism, I put on Christ. And Greg pointed out to me last week when I was looking at that passage, or maybe it was the week before. No, it was last week. Um, the idea, the idea of, of Greek philosophers who would put on their, their, their cloak. And, and philosophers wore this really cool philosopher garb. And the students would emulate their professors. But also pointed out in an email to me how the Old Testament, Elijah left his cloak for Elisha. Who did even greater signs, as Jesus said his followers would do. Look, there's a whole lot involved in putting on Christ. But the bottom line is, is we, are, we are one with him. We are his students. We, we follow him. And this is the authority it's not the authority of the age. It's not the authority of, of the, the ecclesiastical interpretation. This is the authority that Paul says. So now here's your pop quiz. Because some of y'all are still in school. You ready? Don't answer out loud in case you get it wrong. Just internally answer. And then when you're through, you can say, yeah, I pretty much had that. How did Christ redeem us from the curse of the law because the law says man you don't keep all of this stuff you're toast so how did Christ redeem us is it a he gave us an easier law to keep okay we'll just tear off the first 700 pages of this book and now y'all just go and do likewise you see here here's an easy law hint it ain't easier. Go back and reread the Sermon on the Mount. Before I couldn't kill, I'm okay with that. Now I can't hate. Define hate. 
Before I couldn't commit adultery. I'm okay with that. Now I can't lust. Define lust. Before I couldn't, you see, I mean, Jesus didn't just come give us some easier law to keep. How about B? Giving us power. Infusing us with strength to keep the law. I'm a believer. Now I have no trouble. I had a young man come up to me one day after class. And uh, this has been long enough ago to where nobody would have a clue who this fella is. I'm not betraying any confidence. I mean, this years ago. And he said, can I ask you a question? And I said, yes. And he said, I'm really struggling with lust. And he said, I just feel like I shouldn't struggle with that and I don't know what to do. And I said to him, I said, how old are you? And he said, I'm 15. And I said, buddy, you got a long road in front of you. <laughs> I said, but, but here are some ways to work within what everything in your body may be shouting to send you a different direction. But the main thing I want you to understand is this is a struggle. And if it's not this, it'll be something else. It might be greed. It might be coveting. It might be lying. It might be gossiping. It, it, there's a host of things out there, and the Christian struggles with them. And yes, God gives us strength, but that strength is never where we become perfect. That strength helps sustain us in the struggle. And over time, we gradually see God transforming us into the likeness of His Son. But that will be complete in the day when we're united with Him after His reappearing. See, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by giving us an example to follow. No, we can't follow Him. Yes, he wants us to, but you can wear all the WWJD bracelets you want. That doesn't mean you're going to do it. The answer is D, by becoming a curse for us. The penalty of the broken law that should have crushed me crushed Christ. And that redeemed us. So that's the flow of Galatians up to where we are now. We've got one more in this doctrinal section, which we'll do next week. And then after Easter, we get into the practical how do you live section of the, the book. But I wanted to put it all into one big picture. Here are points to ponder. Um, um, just a couple of things. Uh, I can do this in one minute each. But these are important. Uh, Jared told me, he said, uh, uh, you know, uh, he likes giving them something to... He worded it real good. I don't remember how he worded it. But Pastor Jarrett said, uh, you know, give him shoes to walk in or something. I, it's, I'll, I'll ask him. I'll get it right next time. But I love it. Here are points for home. Galatians 1, 15 and 7, through 17. When he who had set me apart before I was born was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia. I love this passage. Do you know why? It shows the sovereignty of God 
and the personhood of Paul. God was sovereign. God chose him. God set him apart before he was born. But it does not destroy Paul as a human and Paul's ability to make choices. In the same passage, God set him apart. God is sovereign. But Paul made the choice not to immediately consult. Paul made the choice not to go to Jerusalem. Paul made the choice to go to Arabia. I love that. God has chosen you, but he does not strip you of your human dignity. You still make real choices. You are free to make choices and free to choose. And take that point home and consider how you're going to live. Here's your second one. Galatians 2.16. A person is justified through faith in Christ. So we also have believed. It's the same word as faith. It's just the verb form in the Greek. We also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ. He says it three times. Faith, faith, faith in Christ. Christ. Here's the point. This is critical. All of the value of our faith is in the object of our faith. Faith that is directed toward Christ. That's what gives faith its value. Faith in itself as a psychological force isn't New Testament faith famous preacher born in the late 1800s I think probably died in the 1960s or so maybe maybe a little later um, but very famous because in the 50s he wrote a book the power of positive thinking Norman Vincent Peale and he would tell you in his books just believe 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 just have faith just just be confident just be positive and it was a mental psychological lever to try to get you to have a happier life. The solution to your life is to solve your psychological problems by just saying, I believe. You've got to have something to believe in. It's not just the power of positive thinking. The value of belief is the object you believe in. You're going to trust Christ for your salvation, not just give yourself a mental head trip of, I believe, I believe, it'll be okay, it'll be ah, pa, 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 pa. No, it's It's trust. And then final point, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. The person justified by faith cannot go on wanting to disappoint and shame God, the God who paid that awful price to save me. Morality and moral goodness makes all the difference in the world to me. And, and the Holy Spirit within me convicts me of that. And I do struggle and you do struggle. And that struggle is real, but that struggle is also really important. Don't ever get to a point where you just say, hey, I am who I am. And Katie, bar the door. Let me bless you in the name of Jesus. And let's go hear a great sermon from the end of the Gospel of John. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray your blessings on everyone that hears this word. That your conviction of your Holy Spirit will convict us of the guilt we bear before you for moral guilt. But also of the incredible, awesome love that took that guilt on voluntarily. And suffered on our behalf so that we could be redeemed by the blood of Christ and share in his resurrection. Make that real to us, Father. Forgive us for trying to live to, to be adequate in your sight. Forgive us for this works-based righteousness 
we are not righteous before you, Father. And that hurts us and it grieves us, but it also brings rejoicing at your forgiveness in Christ. And we want to live better to, 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 to your joy. For Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. See you guys next Sunday. God bless you.